The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated and pray with me. Come, Holy Spirit, come and fill the hearts of your faithful all of the hearts here in this room. Send forth your spirit, Lord, and your word promises that when you do, you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, renew us. Recreate us. As Samuel said, speak, Lord. Speak to us, for your servants, all of us, long to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. When I realized uh, that I was going to be preaching this week, and I say that I realize because we put out a preaching schedule. And I, it's even on an Excel spreadsheet to make it official. I don't know if you can do Excel. I can't do Excel, so I had to get help to put it together. But we put out a, a preaching schedule, at least through the first four months of the year. And there's lots of preachers on it. I can't wait. I mean, one of the joys of being in a church with ordained people and a few unordained that have the gift of preaching is to be able to hear God bring his word through other people. So I was very excited. This week I wasn't scheduled to preach. Um, and I had a full week. You know, you had one of those weeks that you're really looking forward to. Maybe it's a it's a fishing trip or a golfing trip at the end of the week. You know, you're gonna you're gonna work for a few days and then you're gonna go away on this trip. And when you start the week out, you think, oh, this is gonna be so glorious. And and I can't wait to come back and hear Ryan preach. I mean, I love Ryan's preaching and and Ramsey's preaching and Mike Lumpkin's preaching. And I can't wait to come back and sit at his feet after a men's retreat, no less. So I'm gonna go with a few men from the church. Uh, we're going to get filled with the Spirit. I'm going to come back and be in worship, and then I'm going to hear someone else preach. This is going to be the best weekend of my life. You know, people look at me all the time. They do this to clergy people. I don't think they know exactly what they're saying. It's habitual. So on Fridays, which for most clergy people is like our, our Saturday um, of the weekend, they'll look at me at checking out of a grocery store and say, have a great weekend. And there's a part of me that wants to go, well... If you think having a great weekend would be selling pumpkins tomorrow and then cleaning up the straw and then inviting some people, you know, go through this whole litany of things that I'm going to be doing on the weekend as a servant for the Lord, then I'll have a great weekend. Well, this particular weekend, I was really, I mean, I was embracing that kind of Michelob, you know, make it the best. It was going to be a great weekend. I was going to come back and Ryan was going to preach. However, he came back from California and did what we've asked anybody on our staff. He quarantined and then he went to get a test. Um, knowing that his brother had just tested positive in California. So we prayed, Lord, please don't give Ryan the COVID. Guess what? He's positive. So he's been quarantined um, and will be quarantined for another week. And the good news is his symptoms aren't too bad and his wife and his daughter don't have it. So there's one of those 
mysterious COVID, you know, how does that happen? They're living in a small space, but the other two are okay. So when I found out it was going to be, I was going to be back on the docket, and I, I, I did what most uh, panicked preachers would do. I just, I grabbed the lectionary and I grabbed the Bible. I'd love to tell you that I spent all afternoon praying, but I didn't. I just grabbed them both and put them on my desk and looked at the readings and looked at the, at the, at the schedule and went, okay, according to these readings, Lord, it sounds to me like this sermon needs to be about call and community. Samuel, Samuel, yes, Lord. Nathaniel, I knew you. Okay, Lord. So it's about God calling us. And then it's about him calling us from someplace, you know, because that's what God does. Mired in sin, men and women, got something in your life that's pulling you in the opposite direction of God? When he calls you, he's going to call you out of that. He can't be in that sinful place. So God always calls us out of something, into something. And he always calls us from something to something better even if we don't know it. So I was like, okay, sermon's complete. I got this. I'm ready to go away and have a great weekend. And I, and I went to Inklings on Wednesday, which is a group of guys studying a book by Eugene Peterson. And I started to think, well, no, wait a minute. Maybe this sermon's about names. Maybe the Lord wants me to get up and talk about how he knows our names. Well, that's good news. It's also one of my favorite things theologically to talk about. What happens when we meet God on the other side of this world? I love to talk about it, and I base it heavily on what C.S. Lewis wrote. You see, I believe that when we die, when we draw our last breath here, and this solves a lot of problems, we were just in the Tim Keller class on is Christianity the only way to God, and I, and I believe it is, it's a bold claim, but this particular theology of Lewis that I've embraced solves some of that problem. Because I believe scripture says that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. And I believe that means that every last person, whether they were born in Tibet, born in China, uh, born in Africa, who have never heard the gospel, will all get a chance to meet the gospel. When we stop breathing on this side of the world, and we wake up in eternity, outside of time, we can't talk about that right now, no time in eternity, we wake up in eternity, I believe the first thing the creator of the world, Jesus, is going to do when he sees us is simply say our name. He's going to look right at us and he's going to go, Harry. Or he's going to go, Brian. And when we hear him, when we hear the one who created us say our name for the first time, we hear it, everything's going to change. So I thought, okay, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, take, I'm going to borrow from Peterson. And I'm going to come to the church on Sunday. I'm going to preach about name. You know, Samuel, Eli, all the names. It was going to be great. And then I began to think about what comes right after this reading in the gospel. The next person that Jesus calls is Simon Peter. And when he calls Simon, the first thing he does when he sees him is he changes his name. He, he looks right at Peter and he says, you know what? We're not going to call you Simon anymore. I will give you a new name. I'm going to give you a new name. I'm going to call, I, from this point on, I call you Cephas, which is kind of a funny if you say it in the southern accent. Cephas. So Cephas, you're going to be the rock on whom I will build my church. Uh, I see you, Peter, differently than you see yourself. I see your whole life. Jeremiah says it this way. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Jeremiah 5.1. So as the Holy Spirit was leading me further and further, I finally went on the retreat, now completely confused about whether I was supposed to talk about call, thanks for laughing, call and community or names. What, Lord, what do you want me to say? 
And the Lord, I felt like, was leading me into this place where he was telling me, get up there and tell people that I really know them. I know them better than they know their self. And the Hebrew word for know, to know, is yada. It's where the Jewish idiom comes from, yada, yada, yada. So, you know, when you're talking to somebody, imagine you're in the delicatessen in New York and you're there with a Hebrew or a Jewish person and they're telling you a story and they're trying to get through it quickly and they go yada, 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 which means you know, you know, you know. Here's the interesting thing about that word, though. When the Hebrew is used for you know, it means something a great deal more intimate than just you know, you know, you know. Like there's a lot of traffic out there, you know? No. When the Hebrew word uses the word yada, the first time it's used, it's this. Adam knew his wife, Adam Yadah, his wife, and she bore him a son. So now, adults in the room, yada, 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 that takes on a whole funny new meaning, doesn't it? To know in Hebrew means to intimately know someone, to virtually get inside that person, for the two to become one, as Don read about, don't ever, whatever you do, don't go with someone else and have Sex outside of marriage, essentially, is what God's saying. Because when you do, the two flesh become one. And when I'm counseling young men and young women who are about to be married, we spend a whole session on what that means. And we pray. Most of the time, tears flow. Because what they realize when they start to believe that God knows them is that they've, they've actually joined other people and they're dragging them along with them whether they realize it or not. One of my professors, when he taught about this Corinthians passage, staggered me. I never thought of it this way. He said, you know, men and women, if Christ is in you, as Paul is saying in Corinthians, then every time you sin, you've dragged Jesus there. So my mind immediately went to the darkest, worst sins. You know, we, we have a scale of our sins, don't we? You know, get, losing our temper with our children is somewhere below the halfway point. Um, losing our temper in traffic almost doesn't even count anymore. Um, all the different things in our lives that we take as sin... And then we got those really bad ones down here on the end, in the dark place where light doesn't shine. We don't want anybody to see or anybody to know. You know, that, that's what I did in my mind when my professor said, Jesus uh, goes with you into all of your sin. Uh, so there I was, kind of in this quagmire of what am, what am I going to talk about? What does it mean for Jesus really to know us? And the, and the retreat was helpful because it began to lead me to these places where I started to ask questions like, well, is he really there for even the worst sinner? Is he really there for the person um, who doesn't love him? Is he really there for the person who doesn't want him? And the answer I kept hearing over and over was a resounding yes, that Jesus is there for everyone, no matter the measure or the degree of their sin. And when we hear him say our name, like many of the guys did on the retreat, and then when we hear him change it, something happens. As soon as we realize Jesus knows every last detail about us, even the dark, ugly sins that we would never tell anybody, as soon as we realize that, we're set free. I was at a church for a long time as a lay person, and one of the well-intended people on the staff came up to me one time and said, hey, Gary, I'd really love for you to teach a class on this particular book that I found on the Internet. I think it would be great. I said, well, okay, what's the title? And she said, what men really think? And it was, I was like, what? She said, yeah, it's supposed to be a really good book. I said, Joy was her name. I said, Joy, there's no way I'm going to get up there and teach people or talk about what men really think because I'm a man. And I promise if I start to tell everybody in this room what I really think, there won't be anybody in here in five minutes. 
You guys will all be running from the door and come tomorrow. I won't have a place to call home. Because we all have those protected, deep, dark, ugly places in our life that we don't want anybody to know about. And yet Jesus says, I know you that intimately. Remember the movie uh, A Few Good Men, Jack Nicholson, Tom Cruise? Tom Cruise plays the overzealous young Navy jag. And Jack Nicholson plays a crusty Marine colonel who is given the charge of keeping the political prisoners in Guantanamo Bay. It's at the end of his career. He's done all kinds of things in the Marine Corps, we learn in the movie. But now he's stationed at Guantanamo, keeping the bad guys away from the good guys. That's an oversimplification. Well, there's a scene in the movie where Cruz trying to drive his point home because Cruz wants to know the truth, he says. He wants to know the deep, dark secret about what really happened in Guantanamo Bay that's the plot of this movie. And Cruz comes to the witness stand, and he pounds his hand on the stand, and he says, Colonel, I want to know the truth. And Jack Nicholson, the great actor, he leans back in his uniform and starts to get this smile that turns into a snarl on his face, and he looks right at the young officer, and he says, the truth, the truth, you can't handle the truth. The truth is, Nicholson goes on to say, while you sit here, comfortable in Annapolis, Maryland, surrounded by all of the, all the benefits of this society, I'm down there doing the dirty work. You don't want to know what's going on down there. Well, brothers and sisters, in that movie, Jack Nicholson is actually pray, playing the Christ figure. Jesus Christ stands on this earth and looks at all of the darkness in every last one of our hearts and our souls, and he basically says to sin and the devil, bring it. Bring it to me. I will take every last ugly act. I will take every last ugly thought. I will take every last one of those to the cross. And he was killed bearing all of that ugliness, bearing all of that truth. And the truth is, he rose from the dead. And he wiped his hands and he laid it down and said, okay, that's over, that's in the past. Now let's get on with the rest of this. Now let's get on with the rest of this. And so that's when, brothers and sisters, it dropped for me. This idea that what God really wants us to know this morning, what he really wants us to hear is that he has a steadfast love for us. Don read it beautifully in Psalm 63, verse 4. He has a steadfast love for us that is better than this life. And for God to know us means that we come in touch with what it means to receive that love. So now the Corinthians passage began to make sense to me. This passage on church discipline this passage on sexual immorality, what Paul is saying to all of us, to the church is, hey, everybody, you're no longer that person anymore. Paul says, you've been washed, you've been sanctified, and you've been justified. Jesus Christ has stood there like the colonel and said, bring it. And he takes it all, and when we believe that, we're no longer the same old people. So don't, Paul says, go back to living like you used to. One of the saddest, most traumatic moments of my early adrain life was when a friend of mine, a good friend, came to me and confessed adultery. I had just gotten ordained. He came. I was working part-time at St. Paul's and planting a church. And the person came to me and said, I, I, I'm, this is my problem. And 
as I prayed and thought about it and looked at this friend of mine, um, where the Lord took me was to a place where I began to remind him, this person, that this wasn't really who he was. That this thing that he was doing, this thing that was going on in his life was not who he was. What, I, what, I, what the Lord gave me to say was, I, I know you. You deeply love and respect your parents. That, that matters to you as much as anything. You love your spouse. You love being a good father to your children. You're a person of high regard and respect in this community. This is not you. That is the old you. If you are in Christ, you don't desire the destruction of your family. You don't desire the destruction of friendships. You don't desire the loss of respect from people, the loss of your parents' uh, unconditional love for you. This is not you. That's the old you. Live like the new you. So who are we really then in these new lives? Um, The analogy I got to was the way my mother used to walk me into the store. We'd get out of the car. She'd squeeze my hand a little extra tight. She'd look at my brother and I and she'd say, remember where you come from and remember you're my son. Don't go in here and embarrass me. And so away we go with that memory of my mom loves me, my mom cares for me, I just can't pitch a fit if she won't buy me gum. Jesus, who knows us, Jesus, who sees us, Jesus still decides, in in spite of our faults, in spite of the things we believe ourselves, in spite of the way others say things about us, Jesus Christ, when we're honest with ourselves and we're honest about who Jesus is and we let that belief sink in, he will begin to change us. If we've met Jesus, then we've had to meet him on his terms. We had to be confronted like Nathaniel was with the way he knows us, with how he speaks to us. And then we're led to this place where we understand maybe for the first time and maybe in the deepest way that he is on our side all the way to the cross. But remember this, it's always on his terms. And his terms are very simple, which is why confession is built into our weekly worship. His terms are repent and believe. Repent and believe, and then let's stop talking about your past. Let's begin to go forward. Choose this day, Joshua will say, who you will serve. As for me and my house, he says, we will serve the Lord. That's what we're presented with each week in the gospel. We're either for God or on the side of God. We're doing our best to stay committed to God. We're asking God to fill us with his spirit so we can walk with God. Or we're against him. There is no neutral ground. We're either for him or against him. I know that sounds a little harsh, but this is church. You know, somebody ought to say it. We're either for God or we're against him. So the question I want to end with is, where are we letting God into our lives? Where are we asking him to come lead us? Have we signed up for a Bible study, virtually or in person? Maybe have we ordered a new devotional? You know, we've got that old devotional that sits next to our table, our favorite place to sit. We pick up the newspaper, or in my case, pick up the computer, and kind of neglect the devotional. Maybe it's time to get a new devotional, or maybe it's time to be part of a shepherd's group, or maybe it's time to do anything other than just self-indulge and come and be part of God's call here on the earth. So where is he leading us? What is he teaching us? What are we learning each week from God? How are we seeking to know how much he loves us? Are we spending time in his word? Um, Are are we listening uh, to other people talk about God? 
Where are we spending our time? How is he teaching us? Because when we do those two things, brothers and sisters, what will happen is we will begin to be reminded daily that he's come to save us. We'll have God encounters all the time. We'll see him, hear him, feel him everywhere we go. It's that simple. It's that simple. It's as simple as believing that he's come to save us and then following him. One of my favorite things, last story, about why I love Pittsburgh Steelers fans. Uh, I'm a Cleveland Browns fan, and the Pittsburgh Steelers aren't playing anymore. We are. But anyway, why I love Pittsburgh Steelers fans is this. If, and I, I experimented with this. I went to two bars and a restaurant trying this theory out. Pittsburgh Steelers fans are so confident that their team is the best team that if you walk into a restaurant where the game is on and you walk in normally clothed, I mean, you don't wear your Dallas Cowboys or your Patriots jersey, but if you walk in with street clothes and you announce to the bar full of Pittsburgh Steelers fans who don't know you, I'm today a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, you know what their reaction is? It's the same reaction Jesus has. It's terrific. I'm glad you found your way to the greatest team of all. You should have always been a fan. This is the only team that matters. They don't ask you questions about who you used to cheer for, where you, where you came from. Uh, do you know anything about football? Nothing. They'll give you a hat and a jersey, pull you up close to the front of the television set and say, look, we've got another fan. It's where we always should have been in the first place is kind of their mentality. That's the clearest way I can describe the way Jesus feels when we repent and believe. So this morning, let's believe in our hearts. Let's believe in our hearts that we have found the Messiah. And then let's go tell others to come and see and believe and follow. Amen.